Welcome to a special bonus episode of our new podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. On December 15th, the Times of Israel hosted an event in Jerusalem with prominent legal scholars who discussed the new government's plans to curtail the high court's power and explored its likely far-reaching impact on Israeli democracy and society. Now you can hear what was said at this event, as well as additional interviews in our limited podcast series. Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. In these eight episodes, we hear from eight different thinkers from diverse walks of life who express their extremely varied opinions. So please check out this episode and subscribe to Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin, wherever you get your podcasts. Israeli democracy in danger? As judicial reform is discussed in the Knesset's halls, we at the Times of Israel are taking a journey probing into what are the country's current checks and balances and what could be the consequences of potential new legislation. Are we headed for a tyranny of the majority or rather implementing much needed legislation? Join us as we explore these issues with top Israeli legal experts in this Limited Times of Israel podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this fourth episode, which is drawn from a Times of Israel live-streamed event that took place on December 15th at the Israel Democracy Institute in Jerusalem on the topic of judicial reform. In this episode, Dr. Tamar Hotovsky-Brandis argues that undermining the powers of the courts is a common tactic adopted by regimes that seek to restrain democratic rights. She also refutes remarks made by previous speakers. Times of Israel editor David Horvitz introduces Tamar and asks some follow-up questions. Future episodes will include remarks from other speakers who firmly disagree with Tamar. Take a listen. We'll now turn to Tamar Hostovsky-Brandes, Senior Lecturer, Faculty of Law, Ono Academic College, who is going to speak on the dangers of the override clause and incremental institutional changes, among other matters, I am sure. Dr. Brandes teaches and researches in the areas of international and constitutional law, focusing on the intersection between international law, constitutional law, and political theory. Her work in these areas has been published in leading law reviews and collections. Her article, The Diminishing Status of International Law in the Decisions of the Israeli Supreme Court Concerning the Occupied Territories, won the 2021 International Journal of Constitutional Law Best Article Award. Uh, uh, Tamar Hostovsky-Brandes, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to start with two preliminary comments, if I may, which I didn't plan on saying, but I'm going to say. First, I've been reading decisions of the Israeli Supreme Court for 25 years now, and I've never yet come, a, come upon a decision where the court said, I don't like something and therefore I'm going to change it. So perhaps Professor Kupel can reform me, firm me to this case, because this is an argument I've never come across. 
Second, I'm glad I'm going to calm everyone down and say my argument is not going to be based on happy results um, because I'm often not happy with the decisions of the Israeli Supreme Court. And I have a lot of criticism and I criticize decisions in the Supreme Court. And there are a lot of cases where I think the Israeli Supreme Court should have actually been more active than it actually was. Um, so this is not a happy result, hence a happy procedure kind of argument. Um, I want to start with my first point. And my first point is that we're talking a lot about the judiciary, and we've heard a lot about the judiciary and about courts right now. But actually, this is not about the court at all. This is about politicians wanting unrestrained power, including the power to do what they can without worrying about what the law says and what the law is and getting the law out of the way. And there are two parallel ways to get that, to do that. If you're a politician and you want to get things done without being worried about whether the law allows you to do what you want or not, then there are two routes, two ways you can go. One way you can go is to override legal authority, which is what the override clause, as its name implies, is all about. The other thing you can do is to capture legal authority if you are the law and you determine what the law is. And the question was asked before, well, why should the court decide what the law is? Why can't the politicians for themselves decide what the law is? Of course, well, you can either, you know, override legal authority or become by somehow the legal authority, capture legal authority, take the legal authority, and then, of course, you can say what you think the law means and what you think the law says, and then the law is not a problem for you to do whatever you want to do. And this is not a unique Israeli situation. We see the exact same dynamic in countries that Professor Rosnay mentioned before, in Hungary, in Poland, you know, on the one hand, capturing the courts, and on the one hand, you know, filling the courts, the ranks of the judges with submissive judges, with submissive lawyers, those who are assist the government to execute whatever it wants to achieve, whatever it wants to execute. Now, with this in mind, I think it's important to remember that the override clause, which is a very big deal, I think that the override clause is a real concern, uh, mostly because I think that realistically it is irreversible. I think that's a problem. I think that once we have an override clause, no government, <coughs> no Knesset is going to give it up. Okay, once it's there, they can procedurally, but realistically, it's not going to happen. They're going to say, yeah, we don't think it should be. We're not going to use it, but we're still going to keep it for the just-in-case scenario, the just-in-case situation. So I think, first, I think that it, I think the override, override clause is a real concern, but I think that we need to see the larger picture. And the override clause is only one element of a larger plan to curtail any effective checks on executive power. Now, let's see what's on the table right now, these days, as we speak. So, as we said, there's the override clause. That's one proposal that's on the table. Um, there are proposals to amend the procedure of the election of judges, as we've heard before, which I think actually this, this phrase of veto of the judges, it's actually quite astonishing because we talk to people, you know, I, I give you lectures and, and, and it's such a catchy phrase that people actually think that judges have veto, like each judge has veto, like the Security Council, you know, veto members that have veto. They don't understand that this is the composition, that there are three judges and, you know, politicians also have veto power. There are four politicians you know, on the committee that also have a veto power in the committee. So if judges have a veto power, the politicians also have a veto power. But how somehow this term, well, I know it, it was so, so catchy that people just assume, yeah, but the judges, they vote together. They vote at one. But that's a result. And we don't judge procedures 
according to whether or not we are happy with the results. So the fact that some, that often judges vote together on the committee, well, the composition of the court changes. I don't know if all of the judges on the court today, when they will arrive at the committee, they will vote together as one. And in any case, like I said, it's a result, and we don't change the procedure because we are not happy with the result. So we have on the table the override clause. We have on the table the proposals to change the composition of the, to change the uh, procedure, or maybe not just the composition, but the procedure for the election of judges. We just have Yariv Levin, new suggestion to lower the age of mandatory retirement of judges from 70 to 65, which conveniently enough will lead to the happy result <laughs> in which judges are required to retire from the court and we can nominate other judges. Again, coincidentally, a happy result for those who think it's very important from a procedural perspective that judges are not tired at the age of 69, so they need to retire at the age of 67. These are just the attacks on the judiciary. But there are other measures that are being promoted to curtail checks and balancings that are not on the judiciary, right? There are proposals to allow politicians to elect their own legal advisors. Instead of dealing with these very annoying and inconvenient interpretations, you know, that are imposed on us by legal advisors saying, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that. Why don't we just appoint, you know, legal advisors that don't give us trouble, that don't give us, that we can trust, that will enable us, that are enablers and will enable us to achieve what we want to achieve, you know, and then we don't have to worry all the time about whether our acts are compliant with the law or not. Um, there's, there's a suggestion, you know, the proposal, just discussed today, to transfer authorities within the police from the professionals to the political branch. You know, this is a check from below. So instead of, you know, worrying about, you know, now going through an entire process and trying to convince, you know, the professional branch, let's just, you know, take the authority, make sure that we get things done the way we want to do them without being worried about how the professional branch in the police thinks that these, these things should be done. It's just a way of hindering us, you know, to get what we want to do to get, it, get done what we want to do. Um, there's the restructuring of the legal advice regarding the West Bank, you know, which is currently under the military attorney. And now the plans are to transform this entire area of legal advisory from the military to this newly constituted, I don't even know what it is, Ministry of the West Bank that is going to operate with, under a minister within the Minister of Of, of security, that's the plan, right? To establish a new ministry of settlements. I, mean, I, don't, I don't even know how to call it, okay? That will have its own legal advisory that will enable it to do what it wants to do, you know, and to promote its plan. So I think that if we look at every, each and one of element of these plans, they're all problematic in themselves. And I can talk about each and every aspect of it and say what I think is the problem with these. But I think it's also important not to focus on the woods so much that we lose sight of the forest. And I think that if we look around, what we see is that we are standing in the midst of a very dark and scary forest. Okay, and I think that these changes are harmful on their own, but incremental changes have this effect that, you, that they're, because they're most dangerous because you, it's very difficult to say when is the one step too many. They're dangerous on their own, but they're also, but they're much, much more dangerous, if not destructive, as, as part of the combination. You know, you stand in front of a mirror, you pull one hair, you pull another hair, you pull a third, a third hair, and then you say, oh my God, I'm bald. How did this happen? You know, and I think that what we're witnessing here is the process where at the end, we might be bald from any effect 
effective check on political power. Now, I want to say, uh, respond, which I didn't intend to, but I will, to, um, to the last, you know, it's very dark portrayal of the court. And first, the question that was asked, well, what are, I mean, we ask, we talk about limits of government, so the question that was posed here, well, we know what the limits of government, but what are the limits of the court? And I have to say that we have to remember that the type of power that courts have to begin with is a very different type of power from the type of power that governments and legislators have to begin with. So I have yet, to, I don't remember, I don't recall of a court that overtook a country and transformed it from the democracy to an autocracy all through the mere powers of standing or through the mere powers of justiciability. But I have seen many countries in which other branches of the government have overtook the country and turned it from a democracy to an autocracy. So I think, I'm sorry, but it's somewhat populist to talk about, well, what are the limits of the courts? Because the court doesn't have that same type of power that the other branches of the government have to begin with. Now, what I see and what I would think is that what we're hearing here and the type of picture that's being portrayed with this focus on reforms or changes, you know, with respect to the powers of the court, is the portrayal of the picture as if the court is the source of all problems in Israel. If we just solve this, everything will be fine. But actually, as Professor Osnay said before, public opinion show, polls show us that this is not the case at all. They show us that the public is not interested in the override clause. But what they also showed us more, especially polls before, especially polls conducted before the elections, was that the general Israeli public is not that interested in this whole question of reforms in a judicial system. There is a small group of very determined, not to say obsessed politicians, that put the issue of reform of the judicial system as, the, as their main concern and the main achievement they want to achieve right now, immediately in the current, current term of government. But the Israeli public is worried about other things. It's worried about education. It's worried about healthcare. It's worried about transportation. Where are the judicial Supreme Court decisions that prevented the government, you know, from providing, from doing what it needs to do in these areas, from government. And I think there is discontent in Israel. There is discontent because people feel that they give the state a lot and the state doesn't give them back what, they sh what it should give them back in return. And I expect our politicians to do that. Fix healthcare, fix education, fix transportation, fix the problems that need to be fixed. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, want to ask, I want to ask you something that's, that has been put to me, and it's, it's relevant to, to your presentation. It's a very fundamental, I'm not sure how widely held, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's not quite widely held view, which is, you know, the purest representative or representation of democracy is our elections, never mind opinion polls and so on. And there was an election, and by the way, there's lots of nuances in that election that we could get into. But within the parameters of our system, this coalition was elected. It has a strong majority. <laughs> that is the purest expression of the people's will. And then its desire to, to act on the people's will runs into this unelected court. You know, I mean, people are, there's a lot of people, I think, who are stuck on that and say, we understand, you know, I'm sure the court does lots of very important work and there are lots of protection, but the bottom line is we chose these guys. These are the guys who we want to implement policy. Why are those people going to have the right to hold them back? 
It's a one-sentence answer, actually, because policy and enacting policy and even enacting law does not include the right to violate human rights. Because rights, by definition, the definition of rights is restrictions on power. And if you say, well, we have a powerless government, then it means that we have no rights. That's a definition of right. Sorry, if we have a powerless government. If the government, an all-powerful government, I'm sorry, a, a government that can do anything, then it means that by definition there are no rights. So, so forgive the counter-argument, it's my job here to play the devil's advocate. The majority elected, the democratic uh, elected majority will be saying, this is what we think it is right to do, and the unelected chosen few are going to say, no, we consider that to be an untenable infraction on, on rights. No, but it's not. But what the, wait, okay, and we now need to get things in order. What the court does, right, is give the court, when, when the court, for example, invalidate, invalidates legislation, contrary to what was, you know, inferred earlier, the court doesn't do it because it doesn't like the legislation, right? The vast the rules that were invalidated, laws that were invalidated by the court, were validated because they were seen, they were determined to be, you know, not compatible with the rights entrenched in basic law, human dignity and liberty. So it's not that the court says, I think that this is wrong. The court says, this is wrong according to the rights entrenched in basic law, human dignity and liberty enacted by the Knesset acting as a constituent power. Now, yes, we have a structural problem where the basic laws can be amended very easily, but, let's put, but, but we have to be frank about it and say that the idea that basic law, human dignity and liberty is a constitutional norm has been accepted even by the current Knesset and even by the current government, because otherwise you don't need the override clause. You can just cancel the law. Right? You can, you can just say, well, you know, goodbye, basic law, human dignity and liberty. You were interpreted wrongly the entire way. We don't need it. We, we, we don't need it anymore. So there are working assumptions, working conventions that have been accepted in Israel according to which basic law, human dignity and liberty is a constitutional norm. And if it is a constitutional norm, then, you know, there is a clause within basic, within the basic law itself that says under what conditions the Knesset can enact a law that infringes upon a right. So rights in Israel are not absolute rights, right? Within basic law, human dignity and liberty, the, the Knesset already has an opportunity to enact a law that infringes upon the rights that are entrenched in the basic law subject to certain conditions and certain terms. And what the Knesset wants to do now with the override clause is to have, you know, a path to override and infringe upon rights without any conditions and without any terms. This is what it is about. This is about, this is about legislators without any limits. I mean, if we're talking about a law that is promoting a very important public goal <coughs> and it is compatible with the values of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, right? And, and, that it, and it is proportional then the Knesset can already enact it, despite the fact that it violates a basic, a basic right that is entrenched, entrenched in the basic law. This path already exists. It is not about that. It is about wanting more. And I'll conclude by saying that the scenario that Professor Cohen presented initially is actually the optimistic scenario in which the override clause is actually override, an override in the sense that it's enacted 
that the law is re-legislated only after the Supreme Court has already had its say and said, you know, that a certain law infringes upon right and hence is unconstitutional. At least some of the proposals on the table talk about an override clause as a, pre as a preemptive measure that the court will never have its say. It's not about who has the final word. It's about who has a word at, about, about whether the court has a word at all. So if the Knesset initially legislates with this preventive override clause at hand, the court won't even be able to say to the people, you know, to educate the people and tell them, you know, this law that the Knesset, your Knesset just, laid it, just legislated, it infringes upon one of your basic rights. The people won't even have the right and the opportunity to know that this happened. I want to ask you two very brief final questions, uh, Tamar. First of all, do you see any room for uh, any need for reform at all in two areas uh, especially, but, but anywhere that you'd like to touch on this, when it comes to the ease with which basic laws can be changed and any kind of override mechanism if there were a larger majority required and so on? Any, any areas where you think, you know, things think the balance needs to be adjusted a little bit? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll surprise you. I think the entire first topic needs to be reformed. I think we have to have a, a rigid system. I think the Harari decision can take us no longer. I think a system in which you can enact and cancel, you know, basic laws the way we can in our system, you know, is unthinkable. I think we've witnessed it. You know, it's an unprecedented constitutional crisis. And I think it's time to have, you know, a full constitutional arrangement. Ideally, it would be a constitutional. Not ideally, it would be some kind of other permanent arrangement. But here's the catch. I think that before talking about this, we have to talk about what would be the procedure in which such a permanent arrangement can be accepted. And we have to talk about representation. And when we talk about, you know, minority, well, sometimes... Sometimes this, this group is the minority, sometimes that group is the minority. We have to be realistic here, not in terms of happy results, but in terms of structure and composition of the Israeli society. We have in Israel a minority that is a permanent minority. We have an Arab minority in Israel, and it is a permanent minority. It's marginalized in the government, as Professor Cohen said, with one very small exception. It has constantly been marginalized in the government. It has some representation by convention, you know, in the Supreme Court. If we change the form of the manner for the election of judges, it <coughs> might lose that, you know, representation. Also, we have to think about the process in which the permanent minority will have a representation, will be part of the process of entrenching Israel's constitution or Israel's constitutional in constitutional norms. And I think that I also responded in a way to, to your question about the election, of, the elec the election of, of, of judges, right? That was the, quest the second question. The, the procedure is not sacred, okay? I don't think the, pro the procedure is not sacred. But when we look at other countries, we also have to think about the balances. Who is involved in the process? Is it just a coalition? You know, is it just the current political majority? When we look at countries that have, you know, permanent minorities of the type that Israeli have, what are their systems? So we can review the system, but not in the way it is done now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Brandes. Thank you for listening to this piece of a discussion hosted by the Times of Israel delving into all sides of the looming High Court Override Clause proposal. A thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to TOI's own Mick Weinstein. Shalom. Shalom.